Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7, it's page 747. If, uh, if you're using one of our hardback Bibles there, it'll be helpful if you're looking at a copy of the Word as we move along. We're looking at all of chapter 7, 14 verses. We've been making our way through Zechariah, and uh, we come on the other side of those eight visions. It's basically the first half of the book. These eight visions God gives to Zechariah. We're kind of turning a corner now, and uh, here we come to the next section of the book in chapter 7. Zechariah 7, 1 through 14. There's a handout, or I'm sorry, an outline rather, there in the worship guide. If that's helpful for you to see where we're going, have a spot to write down anything you think could be helpful. Zechariah 7, 1 through 14. Um, I wonder, I think you probably have, but, but I wonder if you've noticed the instinct in people in our culture, even people that aren't really religious and would say that themselves. Yeah, I'm not really a religious person, but I wonder if you've noticed the instinct in most people, I think, in our culture, to, to perform certain religious practices in certain places at certain times. And they're sort of hanging their hat on that. So there are certain special religious practices in a certain special place at a certain special time. So, so somebody may not ever go to church on a Sunday during the year, but they'll show up on, on Christmas Eve at a Christmas Eve service to maybe take the Lord's Supper. They're doing that thing that they think, oh, this is a significant religious act in a particular place at, at a special time. Or, or maybe they'll come to church once a year on Easter Sunday and, and they'll write a check for the ministry of the church and, and they'll think that that good religious work a few times a year is, is enough to appease the Lord. That's enough for him to be pleased with them. You've probably known people that maybe they won't come right out and say it that bluntly, but it kind of seems to be clear that's the way that they're, that they're thinking about it. As long as I've been alive, that, that's very much been a category in our culture. But of course, the question is, what does God think about that? What does God think about the commitment from somebody that, that's the kind of commitment that's just occasional? So it doesn't happen all the time, just certain occasions. What do you think about the commitment that's occasional and ceremonial? You know, going through these particular uh, ceremonies. Well, our passage, it, it really answers that question for us. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 7, 1 through 14. And they were told, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezir and Regum Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit to the former prophets. 
Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of, uh, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. Okay, so we're gonna see four main points drawn from this passage. Those are the four main points listed there on the outline. So first, knowing God's expectations is the most important task that you have. We're gonna see that in verses one through three. Second, religious activity that's not from the heart is worthless. At least the way the Lord thinks about it. That's in verses four through seven. Third thing we're going to see, God wants a heart that wants good for others. That's the kind of heart he's interested in. See that in verses 8 through 10. And then finally, the scariest condition in the world, and our world has a lot of scary conditions that we could have, but the scariest condition in the world is a hard heart. We'll see that in verses 11 through 14. But, but let's remember our context here. So remember, the southern kingdom of Israel, what's called Judah, they had been graciously brought back to the promised land from exile. They were in exile because of their sin in Babylon. God was gracious. He had told them, you're going to be there 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. That's exactly what he did. He always keeps his word. So he brought them back to, back to the promised land. But you remember, things weren't like they hoped that they would be. So the temple wasn't totally rebuilt yet. That was the center of their religious life. It wasn't rebuilt yet. There was a governor, but there was no king. That was different. All of their fellow uh, Israelites weren't yet back in the promised land. It was sort of just a segment of them. So it, it just wasn't the same. And God raised up this prophet, Zechariah, to bring God's word to God's people and, and to encourage them in particular. This book is for encouragement, for, for the covenant community of, of God's people. And again, the first half of Zechariah, chapter 1 through 6, made up almost entirely of eight visions, supernatural visions that God gave to Zechariah. But, but we pick up here with chapter 7, two years after those visions. So everything we've looked at so far, we're picking up now with what's happening two years later. So again, let's, let's see how Zechariah sets this passage up for us. Just like we read the beginning of our passage, beginning in chapter 7, there's this delegation from a town called Bethel. It was about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And it looks like some of God's people had resettled that town after being freed from Babylon. Well, some of God's people, they come, they come down from Bethel, and it looks like they're coming to the leaders of Jerusalem, and they're asking this question. They want to get this question answered. It's a question about fasting. But look at what the bigger question is. Verse 2, now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regum Malik and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. That word entreat, that just means to pursue or, or even to, to beg for. So the, the presenting issue is about fasting. We'll talk about that in a second. But the real issue is these folks want to know what they need to do for God to be pleased with them. That's kind of the bigger issue. Now, we're going to see their motives for this are questionable. We'll see that throughout this passage, but they are at least saying the right thing. They're saying that they want to pursue the favor of the Lord. That's why they're coming and asking this question. They're asking the priests and the prophets, what are God's expectations for us? That's the bigger question. And listen, there is no more important question in the universe for people like us to ask than that. 
And this is our, our first point. Knowing God's expectations is the most important task you have. And God does have expectations for us. So if you're here and, and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, in particular, you need to understand this. God has expectations for us. Another way to say it is he created us for a purpose. He didn't just create us to do our own thing. No, he created us with a particular purpose in mind. Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism, so a catechism is just questions and answers drawn from the scriptures that help Christians understand the Bible better. It was this catechism written in the 17th century by some Presbyterian brothers. Here's how this catechism says it. There it says, the chief purpose of man, the reason we were created, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's good, isn't it? Isn't that a good way to boil it down, to sum it up? Man's purpose is to bring glory to God and to enjoy God forever. But, but here's the thing. Even, even as God's children, on our own, we don't always know how to bring God glory. That's important for us to understand. We might think we do. You might be thinking right now, I have a surefire way to glorify the Lord. I will do this thing and God will love it. And sometimes that's, that's the case. But, but sometimes that thing that we think will glorify God doesn't actually glorify God. And we understand what this is like, right? It's almost Christmas time. Haven't you gotten a present from somebody before, even somebody that knew you well, where they said, oh, I saw this thing and I just knew you would love it. And in reality, you did not love that thing. And you're kind of left thinking, does this person know me at all? Why would they think that I would like this thing? Well, here's the thing. We can do that with the Lord, where we think, oh, the Lord will love this thing. And in reality, the Lord does not love that thing. And see, the thing is, you and I are sinners. And that sin, it doesn't just affect our emotions and our actions, although it definitely does. It also affects our thinking. Sin affects my thinking. It affects your thinking. Sinners like us, we don't think like the Lord. The fancy term for that is the noetic effects of sin. That's fancy sounding, isn't it? It comes from a Latin word that means to perceive. What it means is sin affects our perception, the way we see things, the way we think about things, even about worship. So you might remember this story in Leviticus 10. You've got the sons of Aaron. They think they're doing good by offering God this, the, the text calls it a strange fire, meaning it's, it's a fire uh, that God hasn't asked them to give to him. But they think, oh, you know what? I bet God would love this fire given to him in this particular way. But you'll remember from that story that the way they thought they'd glorify God, it didn't glorify God. He did not like that thing. And see, oftentimes sinners like us will think we're glorifying God when, when really we aren't. But, but the good news for us is God tells us what will glorify him. He tells us how to worship him. And of course, he tells us in the Bible, in the scriptures. So you can think about it this way. We're kind of like people who, who have, we're going to a wedding. We have no idea what to get the bride and groom. But praise God, one of the brilliant inventions of how whenever they invented wedding registries, 
since then, one of the best inventions mankind has had is a wedding registry. You don't have to guess. The bride and the groom tell you exactly what it is that they need, exactly what it is that they want. God gives us a registry of the things that glorify him, and that registry is his word, the Bible, the scriptures. So, so the people in our passage, they come to the leaders, they're asking what will glorify God, and look at what happens through Zechariah. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people. So see, God gives his word to his people so they'll know how to glorify him. That's why he gives us his word. We need God's word to give us his expectations because on our own, we, we don't know how to, to glorify God. So, so the person in our culture who thinks God is pleased with their one time a year church attendance and, and the check they write, the, the Bible tells us if God will be pleased with that or not. We go to the Bible to figure out what it is God is looking for in terms of the worship of him. And as Christians, we, we should remember this when we're reading the Bible. So devotionally, when, when you're reading the Bible, that's a question that you should ask of scripture. You, sh you should ask, okay, in this passage, what is the Lord asking me to think and to feel and to do? Right? What are God's expectations for me as it's revealed in this passage that I'm reading right now? It's a question we should always ask. In our own judgment, we, we don't know how to worship God well, but we need to know because he's our creator and our judge. We're going to see that in a scary way down in verses 12 through 14. So, so with that understanding, knowing God's expectations is the most important task that you have. But, but here's where we get into the real punch of our passage. Look again at the particular question these folks from Bethel bring. Verse 3. They were saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, when they say abstain, should I abstain? They're talking about abstaining from food. They're talking about fasting. We see it clearly in God's answer in verse 5 where he says, when you fasted and mourned. So that's what they're, they're talking about. And if you're not too familiar with the Bible, you might not know, but God's people are sometimes called to fast as a religious activity, as something that's glorifying to him, to go without food for a particular time. Now in the New Testament, it's only commended to the church in a couple of places, both in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13 and 14. And, and there, it's commended for a church that's looking for God's direction and blessing when it comes to a certain decision they have to make or a certain ministry that they're implementing or a missionary they're sending out. But, but going without food in the Old Testament was typically for a different purpose. And we see the purpose by noticing the words that are paired with the activity of fasting in verses three and five. So in verse three, he says, weep and abstain. So abstain from food. So weeping goes along with fasting. It's paired with weeping. And then in verse 5, he pairs fasting with mourned, which just means to, to weep and lament. So the idea is there's a sadness that goes along with fasting in the Old Testament. And here's why. Fasting in the Old Testament was an expression of repentance over sin. That's how it served the people in the Old Testament. Fasting was an expression of repentance because of somebody's sin. So listen to what happens when Jonah preaches the gospel to the Ninevites and they realize their sin. This is Jonah chapter three, verse five. The people of Nineveh called for a fast. 
and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So they were fasting as a way to show their repentance of sin. Or listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord says, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And see the idea, you might wonder, okay, but how's that connect? Okay, it shows that they feel bad about their sin. It's connected to repentance for sin, but what is going without food have to do with being repentant of sin? Well, the idea is that God's people are conforming their physical situation to their spiritual situation. So going without food, it brings somebody's physical situation in line with their spiritual situation, which is that we are spiritual beggars. We're spiritually hungry. We, we don't have what we need. We need it from the Lord. But see, it's easy to forget that, isn't it? You know, it's, it's easy to begin to think that, you know what, I, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty capable person. I think all of us struggle with that kind of pride from, from time to time. But the truth is, if God cut off the line of his grace to you, you would shrivel. You would starve instantly. God's grace is to the soul what food is to the body, right? God's grace is to the soul what food is to the body. Without it, we would be dead. So that's the idea of fasting. It instantly conforms our physical situation to our spiritual situation. In fact, you can leverage that. Anytime you're, you're going without food and, and you're hungry, you can leverage that for your spiritual good by thinking, you know what, this physical state this is exactly my spiritual state. I'm starving. I don't have the resources in myself. I'm hungry. I have to have the Lord. We can leverage that any time we feel hungry. So these folks from Bethel, they have a question about this practice of, of fasting. Look at the particular question again, the end of verse three. They say, should I weep and abstain from food in the fifth month, as I've done for so many years? Okay, so so the Lord's people, they had been fasting apparently in the fifth month for, for a long time now, and they're wondering if they should continue that fast. And it looks like we have enough context to understand the background here. The fifth month of the year was when the temple had been destroyed. So when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in the fifth month. And it looks like the Israelites commemorated that horrible day that had been brought on by their sin. They knew that. They commemorated it by fasting every year in the fifth month. Now, now he mentions a fast in the seventh month too. We're not as sure about that one. So the governor of Judah was assassinated in the seventh month. That could have been the thinking they were fasting for that. But, but it looks like the main idea here is they're thinking about that fast in the fifth month. And they're wondering, should we continue fasting? And the reason is that you may have already figured it out. The temple has begun to be rebuilt. So they're thinking, wait, the temple is starting to be rebuilt. So do we really need to fast anymore? You know, we were fasting because our sin brought on the destruction of the previous temple, but the temple's starting to be rebuilt. So they wonder, do we still need to fast? That's the question. But here's the surprising thing the Lord does. If you're pretty familiar with the Bible, not too surprising if you think about it. They ask God a yes or no question. But instead of God giving a straightforward answer, he responds by asking them a question to get them to see what's going on in their hearts. That's what happens here. They ask a yes or no question. He doesn't say yes or no. No, he asks them a question to help them see what's going on in their heart. Look at how he responds to their question. Should we fast? 
the Lord. Verse 4, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? So instead of just saying, yes, you need to fast, or no, you don't need to fast, he, he gets behind the action to the heart of the action. Some of you kids in here, you might be frustrated when sometimes as your parents, we don't answer you the way that you're looking for, but we're aiming to do this kind of thing, to get behind the action to the heart of the action. It's what the Lord always does with his people. It's what Jesus is always doing with people. So there's times where somebody will ask Jesus a question, maybe the majority of the time, and he does not give them a straightforward answer. He asks them a question to help them see what's going on in their heart. Jesus wants you and me to see what's going on in our heart. Okay, so, so what's the Lord trying to get Israel to see about their hearts here? Well, he wants them to see that their fasting wasn't coming from a place of love for the Lord. It wasn't coming from a place of hatred of their sin. No, their, their fasting wasn't coming from their hearts at all. And here's our second main point. Religious activity that's not from the heart is worthless, at least the way the Lord considers it. Religious activity that's not from the heart is worthless. So the Lord asks this rhetorical question in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Now we need to pause. We know the Lord is not looking for information here. It's not a genuine, straightforward question. The Lord knows everything. He doesn't come to us to try to get information. No, when God asks a human a question, it's because he knows answering that question will do something good for that human. God's questions in scripture, they're never for God's benefits. They're always for our benefit every single time. So, so what does the Lord want his people to understand through answering this question? He, he wants them to see that when they fasted every year, it wasn't for God they were fasting. I, they certainly would have said it was for God, but, but the Lord is saying that's not true. So who were they really fasting for? I think verse 6 tells us. He, he pairs it up. When you're fasting, you're doing it for a reason. When you eat and drink, you're doing it for a reason. He's saying it's the same reason, verse 6. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So they, they weren't fasting for God those 70 years. He says, no, you guys were actually fasting for yourselves. I was talking about this with our two oldest kids one night this past week with, with Jude and Oren. asked them, okay, how was it you think these people were fasting for themselves? What benefit would somebody get out of that, of going without food? Yeah, I think they got it right. Most likely the Israelites weren't fasting, or, or they were fasting rather, to look righteous to others and to feel righteous themselves. That's how they were doing it for themselves. It wasn't for the Lord. They were doing it for other people so they would look righteous to others, and then they were doing it so they would feel righteous to themselves. Let's think about the first of those. So, so the people had been fasting in order to look righteous to others. This is exactly what the Pharisees did, isn't it? We have a, an exact uh, uh, recounting of this. In Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus says to his followers, when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. So you remember the Pharisees, they wanted people to see them and to say, wow, look how godly those guys are. 
You can tell he's fasting. Look at how sad he looks and how hungry he looks. And the Pharisees would make themselves look sad and hungry. And the thinking was, people will look at me and think, oh, what a righteous guy. How, how impressive. Of course, the Pharisees, they, they didn't invent that motivation. No, that, that desire to look righteous to others, that's baked into our own sinful nature. So in our flesh, we want others to think we're righteous. And I wonder if you've noticed this about yourself. Haven't you found, let's say that you serve somebody really well one evening. Maybe you help them, you help them do something that they needed you to give them a ride or take them a meal. And then the next day you're talking with somebody else. Haven't you found yourself sort of cleverly devising a way where that person would ask you what you did the night before? And you could say, oh, well, now that you ask, I took this person a meal. You know, I gave this person a ride that, that needed it. We do that sometimes, don't we? We devise those situations so we get to show our righteousness to, to somebody else. Or haven't you ever put a, a post on Facebook that just happens to highlight something good you did or something good you said? It wasn't really what you were aiming for. It's just a detail, but I put it in there. It just happens to make me look good to everybody else. Or haven't been, there have been times where you've, you've come to church or small group or some other church activity not really because you thought it would glorify God, but more because you were nervous what other people might think if you didn't go. We do things like that, don't we? Our, our reputation, that idea of reputation, that's a hungry thing in you and in me. It always wants more notice, more compliments. And, and if we feed it, it just gets more hungry. And what we should do is what Jesus says to do in Matthew 6. After he talks about the way the Pharisees do it, we should perform righteous acts not to be seen by others, but like Jesus says, for our Father who sees in secret. And so God answers their question about fasting in verse 5 by saying, was it for me that you fasted? And the answer was no. In part, they did it so they could look good to others. But, but see, Israel also fasted in order to feel righteous to themselves, to be self-righteous. They seem to have thought that if they went through the motions, if they performed these certain religious activities at the right time in the right place, then that would be enough for God to consider them righteous. And see, for hundreds of years, Israel had been operating under the assumption that they could just come to the temple at certain times, make certain offerings, or once the temple was destroyed, they could fast at certain times, and that would be all the righteousness they needed. That seems to be what they were thinking, and, and we see that because God's people were disobeying him without worrying about it. They were acting like their disobedience wasn't a big deal, and the implied thinking is, because we're doing these other things. We're fasting. We're performing these other ceremonies. They seemed to think they were, they were doing great because of these external religious rituals. There, there are certain professional athletes that are so talented that they know they can break a rule and they're not really going to get penalized for it because the franchise wants to win games, right? So if you're good enough, you can say this crazy thing or you can do this crazy thing on the field. You can break this team rule, but you're going to get a, a pass. Well, it seems like that's how Israel thought about this throughout the Old Testament. We can disobey God, but we'll just make up for that with our religious rituals, our fasting, our sacrifices, our prayers. Just like we saw with the Pharisee in our assurance of forgiveness this morning. Luke 18, verse 12, he says, God, I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. So he thought he was righteous because of those external religious activities. But, but is God interested in that for the Pharisee? Is God impressed with that? Does he think it's enough? No. Jesus tells us he does not. He tells us the Pharisee is condemned in God's eyes. Why is that? It's because the Pharisee's activity wasn't from his heart. And Israel's fasting wasn't from their heart either. In the next section of our passage, God's going to list for Israel the kinds of things they should be doing. But, but look down at verse 12 for the reason they didn't do the things he wanted them to do. The end of verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So because his people were refusing to obey his commands, their hearts were hard like diamonds, we're told, with God's word bouncing off their hearts. So God knew he didn't have their hearts. And religious activity that's not from the heart is worthless, at least in God's eyes. Now, now we should pause for a second. That might sound harsh to you. Does it sound harsh to you? It might, even for believers here, it might sound harsh. Wait, he's, he's not interested at all in that? Religious activity that's not from the heart is worthless, worth nothing? But think about it this way. Put yourself in God's shoes. Think about how much you would value a gift from your spouse that he or she brought on the way home from committing adultery. So they commit adultery, on the way home they pick you up some flowers or a DVD, and then they bring it home to you. How much would you value that present? Not much, would you? It wouldn't be very valuable in your eyes. That's what it was like for those generations and generations where Israel was walking in disobedience to God, but thought they were doing good simply by fasting a certain number of times a year. So, so by way of application, as a Christian, be sure that's not what you're doing, right? Be sure that, that your devotion to the Lord isn't just made up of church attendance or reading the Bible a certain number of days during the week or, or praying at certain times. Be sure you're as devoted to the Lord on Tuesday afternoon as you are on Sunday morning. And be sure that you're as devoted to the Lord when you're in the grocery store as you are when you're reading your Bible. Because what we need to understand is, if you're not devoted to the Lord when you're in the grocery store, then you're not really devoted to him when you're reading your Bible either. If you're not devoted to him on Tuesday afternoon, you're not really devoted to him on Sunday morning either. The, the man who brings his wife flowers after he has seen his mistress is not committed to his wife. Adulterous Israel, had just been bringing God a, a few fasts every year and thought they were doing what he wanted, when really what he wanted was their heart. We don't want to make that same mistake, do we? Religious activity that's not from the heart is, is worthless. So, so God, he turns their question around to show them that he didn't really have their hearts, and so he's not really interested in their empty rituals that they thought they were performing for him but really were just doing for themselves. No, he, he wants their hearts Okay, so what's it look like when God has someone's heart? Well, that's what the next section tells us. Our third point, God wants a heart that wants good for others. So that's one indicator that God has your heart is when you have a heart that wants good for others. Look at verse 8. He says he's not interested in their fast. This is what he says he wants. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. 
Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So his people had been offering these empty religious rituals like fasting, but this is what the Lord says he, he really wants. He wants a heart that produces these qualities, a heart that wants good for others. Look at the first thing he mentions in particular, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about legal proceedings where there could be a witness that lies on the stand to try to get the defendant found guilty just because they don't like the defendant. It's the same kind of command he gives his people back in Leviticus 19, verse 15. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. So in other words, don't, don't be a false witness in a court proceeding. Don't lie to try to get your enemy convicted of a crime. That happened a lot in the ancient world, and unfortunately it happened even among God's people in Israel. And isn't that such an evil thing? Being a false witness in court to try to get one of your enemies convicted of a crime that you know he or she didn't commit. But see, it's just a good reminder. There's nothing too bad for our sinful flesh, right? There's no limits to what our sinful flesh will do. And, and the ingredients a person needs inside of them to do something horrible like this, you have those same ingredients in your sinful flesh, and I have those same ingredients in my sinful flesh. But to hear God tells us that he wants his people to not hurt others through the legal system. He says, render true judgments. But, but he goes on, he broadens it past the legal system. Verse 10, he says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor. Now that word oppress in scripture, so what that's getting at is you've got one person that's a more powerful person and they're taking advantage of a weaker person where that weaker person does not have any recourse because they don't have the power of the one who is taking advantage of them. He gives a lot of examples here. First, he says, don't oppress the widow. We know what a widow is, right? This is the woman whose husband has died. Although one of our kids this past week, when, when they understood what a widow was, asked about, okay, so the, the, the spider, does the spider's, has the spider's husband always died, right? I mean, sort of. Good idea, right? And that is what it's getting at. But a widow, somebody whose husband has, has died, it's hard to provide for yourself, isn't it? When you're a widow, we know that in this church, we have several widows, it's, it's harder to provide for yourself. It was even harder in the ancient Near East. There weren't ways for widows to really have income. They didn't have much recourse, certainly not legally. They didn't have resources. They were easily taken advantage of. So he says, don't, don't take advantage of the widow. Or the next thing he says, the fatherless, the child that had lost their father or lost their parents. And that, that person was in an even more precarious situation than, than the widow. Children today are in that same sort of precarious situation. That's why we love the Baptist children's home. Well, we love the work that they do, where they take care of kids without parents. They try to see them adopted. In fact, giving financially this month to help that ministry, that'd be a great application of, of this verse. So we don't oppress those groups. The Lord goes on, don't oppress the sojourner. That's a person who was a foreigner among God's people, so they weren't established yet. Right? They didn't have a job yet, most likely. 
They didn't have much saved money. They didn't have any property. You might know folks in this category, folks who have immigrated to our country, don't really have any resources at first or not many. Well, the Lord says, don't oppress someone like that. The last category the Lord mentions is the poor. So in a fallen world, there, there are going to be people that despite working hard, they just can't overcome particular hardships. They kind of can't catch up. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 11. He says, you will always have the poor with you. So part of living in a fallen world is there are situations where people like this can, can be taken advantage of. But as Christians, we should never take advantage of someone else, ever. As Christians, we, we should never take advantage of someone else, especially not somebody who's weaker than we are. So be sure that's not you, right? Be sure that's not you. Be sure you're not taking advantage of folks at work who are less powerful than you are or less established. Or, or if somebody does maybe some contracting work on your house and you could maybe put off paying them, don't do that. No, pay that person the amount you owe them when you owe them that amount. This is a command for inner family relationships too. Kids, don't take advantage of your young, younger siblings simply because you're bigger than they are or you're better at arguing and debating than they are. Husbands, don't take advantage of your wives. One, one marked difference between the world and Christians is that Christians use any power we have to serve and not to be served. That should be a clear, the world should be able to see that so clearly in the church. Any power we have, any authority we have, Christians use it to serve and not to be served. Jesus makes that clear to us in Mark 10, 42. We'll look at the final phrase in verse 9, the kind of heart the Lord wants, what he wants us to do. Final phrase of verse 9, show kindness and mercy to one another. And see, that should be second nature to us as Christians because of how much kindness and mercy the Lord has shown to us. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, right, like the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the poor, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So see, because God's been so kind and merciful to us, we can turn and show mercy and kindness to others, like verse 9 says. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, you may have wondered before, why is it that these Christians around me are kind? Why is it that they're patient? Why is it that they're, they're more loving than, than I am? Well, it's, it's because God was loving and kind and generous toward us as Christians while we were his enemies. And see, if, if you long for those qualities in yourself, the answer is to come to Christ. Come to Christ. Place your faith and hope and confidence in Jesus. Trust that his work on the cross is enough to cover your sins and to recreate you in the gospel. And of course, we, we need that new creation. The kinds of actions the Lord is calling his people to do here, they require new birth in the gospel. They require a new heart. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
So God isn't just interested in the person who, who does some good service projects every weekend or who writes checks to charities. God, God likes those things as long as they're coming from the heart. And a heart that God wants is, is a heart that wants good for others. There's more to it than that, but there's not less. God wants a heart that wants good for others. And what all this means when it gets added up is that there's no scarier condition in this world than, than having a hard heart. And this is the point our passage closes with. Ta- talking about the previous generations of Israelites, the Lord says this beginning in verse 11. He says, but they refused to pay attention and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So beginning really early in the history of this nation, in the history of Israel, God had been speaking through his prophets that that what he most wanted from his people was their heart. And the way that they would know he had their heart was if they obeyed his words. It's exactly what we heard Pastor Tim preach from 1 Samuel 15 a few weeks ago. You remember? 1 Samuel 15 verse 22 has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Or we could say to obey is better than fasting in the context of of our verse. Israel had been told that, but, but they had continued their religious rituals while turning away from the commands of the Lord. And we get this, right? It's easy to think, man, Israel, oh, you guys, you're the worst. You're so stupid. Why'd you do it? But no, we get this. The commands of God are, are difficult. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Remember, that's the way Jesus sums up at least half the law. So loving God and then loving your neighbor as yourself, that's, that's hard. Fulfilling the commands in our passage that we just talked about to do good to others, that's hard. It's a lot harder than going without food for a day. So I bet I know how you'd answer this question. If somebody came to you and they said, hey, we're going to give you a million dollars. You just have to do one of two things, and you get to pick which one you're going to do. Love your neighbor as yourself for a day or go without eating food for a day. Okay, every one of us would do the same thing. Uh, Sign me up for the no food option. I can do that. But the loving my neighbor as myself for a day, good luck. We're not going to be able to do it. We're sinners. But see, God knows that too. He knows that that the religious uh, ceremony option is easy. That that cheap, easy, fake present is, is what his people had offered to him for thousands of years. Like he says in verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Okay, so how did God handle their hard-heartedness? Last sentence of verse 12. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. We should pause there. How terrifying is that? God turned his ear away from Israel because of their unrepentant sin. He, he responded to their rejection of him with rejection of their prayers. We're given the same kind of warning in 1 Peter 3, 7. If you're a husband, this is a relevant passage for us. 1 Peter 3, 7, that's where husbands are told to honor our wives 
so that our prayers may not be hindered. It's the same kind of idea. There's lots of good reasons to honor your wife. This is one of them. God wants the husband to use the authority that we've been given to serve our wives, a heart that wants good for others like we just saw. So God turns his ear away from Israel because of their sin. Verse 14, and I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. So God punished his people for rejection of his word. He, he brought enemy nations in to destroy their cities, carry them away into exile. And of course, his people, they weren't expecting that. That's the thing. They thought everything was going great. They thought they were doing just fine. That seems to be the point the Lord's making up in verse 7. Look there. He says, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited, so see, Israel was doing well, at least from the outside. We should notice two, two quick things here from verse 7 and following. First, material well-being is never a definite indicator of spiritual well-being. Israel had a lot of material well-being, but they were not doing well spiritually, right? But that's because those two things don't always fit. So, so you could get a promotion at work, and you could win a free vacation and have a kid that gets into the college he wants. You, you could have all that material well-being and still be under God's anger because of unrepentant sin. Those two things aren't necessarily connected. God's people thought he was pleased with them just because their nation was prosperous and full of people, but, but he wasn't. Second thing to note real quick, that there's no greater indicator of a hard heart than when you're in unrepentant sin but think you're doing great. That is important for us to understand. There is no greater indicator of a hard heart than when you're in unrepentant sin but think you're doing great. God's people were in the middle of decades-long unrepentance and prolonged hard-heartedness, and they didn't see it. They were, they were calloused. So as we close, what, what current sin are you being tempted to pass off as unimportant and to ignore and to think it's not a big deal? Maybe pride or lust or laziness or selfishness or, or unrighteous anger. What current sin are you being tempted to pass off as unimportant? Israel's disobedience had become effortless. Isn't that terrifying? That can happen. Our disobedience to the Lord can become effortless. Another name for that is hard-heartedness. And of course, God knows that. He knows our weakness. And that's why through our faith in Jesus Christ, he's united us to Christ and, and given us new life in him. He also gives us a church, right? A particular group of people to, to take responsibility for our spiritual care and to try to do good to us. In fact, this is one, one of the chief reasons we gather together here on Sunday mornings is to battle what we just saw in this passage. Listen to Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, so we all have this tendency to be hard-hearted, author of Hebrews says, don't do that. And, and here's what he says. But here's one way to fight the tendency. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
So the, the scariest condition of this world is a, a hard heart toward the Lord. Well, one central purpose of our gatherings as a church is to try to fight that tendency in us, to exhort one another, to let go of sin and grab onto Christ. Our message to each other, it's, it's the same as God's message was to Israel, and his message is to, to us here this morning, give all of yourself, your whole heart to the Lord, because your heart is what he's after. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for, uh, for these true words. We're thankful, Father, that, that you are okay to give us difficult words. We live in a culture that oftentimes winces at that, turns away from it. But Father, you love us, and so you tell us the truth. But Father, we're so thankful that although you could have told us this truth, that, that if we don't give you our hearts, we're going to be judged for that. You're not interested in anything less than that. You could have told us that and then just judged all of us. You had the, the perfect right to do that. We're so thankful that out of love for us, you sent your son to remedy that situation. That Christ paid for all of our sins for those of us that are trusting alone in him. And he gave us a new heart, a soft heart that responds to your word, that responds to the exhortation of fellow believers and where we can actually grow in loving others and having the kind of heart that you want for us. But Father, we pray that our prayer to you always would be, give us love for you in our hearts and help us to turn and give you all of our hearts for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.